How's it going? Yeah, yeah, good, mate. Yeah. Are you based in London? Yeah, yeah. So I, I kind of moved back to London uh, about 12 years ago. So I was always from London and I lived in Brighton for 10 years and then, um, yeah, kind of got excommunicated from Brighton. So, uh, so, so I moved back. Yeah, yeah. But thanks a lot for asking me to come on the show. No, I'm all right. Cheers for doing it. Um, oh, no, I appreciate it. Yeah, like, Quite a lot of the guests we've had on have mentioned you guys. So, like, I'm okay. really, really keen to get you on because they were, like, saying, um, you know, one of the favourite bands from that time and maybe maybe an underrated band from that time. Uh, oh, right. Oh, cool. That's so, yeah. nice. I've listened to a few. I mean, obviously, I was I knew about the podcast and I, I listened to a few things. And, yeah, it was nice. I, I listened to Mark Beaumont's one, actually. It was always it was good. I really like Mark and stuff. So, yeah. To... I was going to ask you about him because... Um, he said he was tipping you guys to be the next big thing, ahead of the likes of the Libertines. Is that um, kind of attention you were aware of at the time? <clears throat> well, <clears throat> excuse me. Yeah, I, I, I sort of met up with Mark, actually, um, a couple of years ago. Uh, I've sort of maintained kind of contact with him. and He was sort of talking about how he really felt like at the time um, there was a sort of an almost kind of unspoken rivalry between us and them. Uh, and 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 I, I guess that yeah, I guess we did sort of feel like that at the time. We played some quite early shows with them, you know, before either of us had released a record. <clears throat> and you know, like, yeah, I think we were kind of aware that that there was some kind of you know that there was there was some attention on us, and and we knew that there was loads on them, you know. And I guess you know at that age, and and, and how it is with kind of like, you know. The music scene then that was kind of centered around centered around the enemy and stuff and 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 kind of uh we knew that there was a lot of bands like checking each other out you know sizing each other up and you know uh that there was a lot of bands the enemy were kind of talking about at the time you know it's pretty exciting really actually it was good to be to sort of be part of it but yeah i i uh i do remember yeah sort of feeling that and and thinking you know and then them like <laughs> them doing loads better than us, you know. But I've always had this thing, though, you know, like, uh, I, I don't know what it is. Like, you, you sort of ended up kind of feeling quite sort of, well, I did certainly, and maybe the rest of the band did. Yeah, we were always kind of a bit jealous about what, what was going on with other bands, you know. We never really felt like we were getting anywhere ourselves. You know, there was always this feeling of kind of, you know, being kind of shoveled up a hill kind of backwards, you know, and uh, <clears throat> trying to kind of... Uh, trying to play catch up really always feeling kind of like like we were the sort of outsiders and kind of forgotten ones there was always that kind of feeling of kind of general sort of self-pity and self-loathing that we kind of had <laughs> you know um, yeah but uh, but yeah i mean mark beaumont really sort of championed us and stuff and it was really great and you know the enemy did and, and kerrang and lots of magazines so it was really good man you know yeah i was reading um one of mark's like gig reviews for you guys in 2005 i think it was yeah he, he put in there like make no mistake 80s matchbox are by far the best new band in britain today so really uh yeah really pushing you guys kind of thing yeah yeah definitely and uh it was sort of uh 
it was it was a great time and it was sort of I kind of it, it was it was great really like the enemy back then I sort of thought you know sort of uh, it was quite exciting to kind of read it and kind of be in it you know every week and and all the other bands and but we always just sort of felt like we were kind of on the outside you know we, we never really felt like anyone really I, I you know I know Mark did I know the enemy but in terms of other bands we always felt like we were just kind of irredeemably unpopular you know and yeah we, we never really seemed to kind of feel very uh like we were kind of very cool you know yeah well that's one of the questions we ask is like whether bands felt part of a community back then or the, whether were they, they were just concentrated on their own band kind of thing uh, is that what you say you kind of like you didn't really feel part of that community there definitely was like like i was just saying there was a kind of a scene around the enemy i suppose you know like a load of bands that came out of the back of i suppose like the, the strokes and the white stripes uh, those were the two initial bands. I think they came out before everybody else. And then there was the wave in 2002, which was kind of like off the back of it. Um, and and I, I think we were definitely sort of part of that community to, to, to a certain degree, but we never really hung out that much with other bands. We always felt like, I don't know, maybe we were just a bit sort of socially awkward or something, but we used to just end up going to kind of all the sort of events where all the other bands were and maybe getting a bit sort of overexcited and just getting so kind of uh, trashed that we'd always kind of end up getting thrown out. Uh, and I think everyone was just a bit, a, bit, a bit like standoffish. I don't know what it was. It was probably all in our heads though, to be honest. I think it's just that thing when you're in a band and, and you know, you, you're sort of younger and, and, and you feel this kind of, I felt like kind of, you know, threatened by other people. And, and you're always like, oh, there's that band and there's that band and they're doing this and they're doing this. And it was this kind of internal dialogue that sort of went on, but it was all just kind of part of it, really. Yeah, so I think we probably did. We probably did. We were quite good friends with the Cooper Temple Clause. Um, oh, yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. And obviously, you know, um, I remember hanging out with the Paddingtons, obviously, you know, and uh, I remember, yeah, we hung out with the Libertines a bit in the beginning, you know, um, and then we, we we seemed to go our separate ways with those guys. I think we ended up kind of in a heavier scene, really. Yeah, like we ended up starting a lot with them, but they, you know, it was a different kind of music, really. I mean, we, we ended up going down the kind of the Kerrang route a lot more and playing with like heavier bands and, and playing with bands like Placebo and Queens of the Stone Age and System of a Down and that kind of stuff, really. Um, yeah. What other bands did we hang out with? Uh, yeah, we toured with the others quite a bit, you know. And oh, the, yeah. Tower, the Towers of London. So they were all on the same management company as us. Yeah, I was going to say about the others because we had Dominic Masters on who said um, he actually bumped into quite recently outside Primark. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I really liked Dom, actually. You know, it was weird. I, ha I hadn't seen him for years and years and years and years. And then I bumped into him outside Primark. And then about a week later, I saw him at Fat White Family at the Kentish Town Forum. Yeah, yeah. So it was really, it was really nice to see him and bump into him. Because I don't think I'd seen him since we were in South by Southwest in like 2006. Uh, uh, playing, yeah, playing a, a showcase there because we were on the same management stuff. So uh, we were on the same management as the Rakes and, yeah, Towers of London and, and those guys so we all went over there and did a did a gig together i mean that festival always seems so far away but so like kind of one of the best ones to play yeah 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 it was it was it was really funny like i think when we i think the first time we went there 
we didn't really have any visas. So our manager had just said, oh, you know, tell them that you're going over there to rehearse. You know, you're going over to America to do a rehearsal. (laughs) (laughs) So do you know what I mean? Like if you'd go all the way over there to do a rehearsal. And obviously they they knew that like this festival was going on. So it was really funny. And it was just after 9-11, you know, the first time we went there. So two two years after. So the security was pretty, was pretty strict. But then when we went there again in 2006, you know, we did go and get like visas and, and it, was, it was quite weird because we went to the American embassy in London and like there was every single band, British band that was going over there to play all in this kind of orderly queue of about 100 people, you know. <laughs> it, was, it was like the sort of NME awards, but kind of at seven in the morning and a queue kind of going into, <laughs> going into the embassy. Yeah, yeah, everyone trying to be... And I remember getting to the front and I, I still had a load of weed in my pocket. I hadn't really kind of registered with me that they would search you when you went in. Our singer turned up without his passport and I turned up with a load of weed on me. And we were both just at the front and, and he had to go, go back and get his, back to Brighton and get his passport. And I was just like, oh, fuck. Like, you know, how could it not occur to you there? that you were going to get searched going into the American embassy. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. So it was good. Yeah. We went over there. It was a good festival, you know, um, uh, good, good to kind of, you know, it's like, it's like, it's like kind of being in some kind of spaghetti Western or something kind of playing a gig. Okay. So Mike, uh, if we just skip back to the beginning a little bit, yeah. Uh, can you just give us an idea of, um, how you, how you went from starting the band to eventually getting a record deal? Well, the other guys, the other four were all from Brighton. I was the only one who's from London and I moved down to Brighton um, in the kind of summer of, uh, in the autumn of 98. And uh, I'd kind of seen Guy around a little bit. Uh, I kind of, I kind of been down to Brighton on a few day trips and seen him in this pub called The Heart and Hand uh, in Brighton and sort of asked him if he could sort me out any speed. And he, and he, and he, he didn't, you know, he kind of blanked me really. And then it was quite funny. And then, uh, and then I ended up moving down to Brighton and, and, and kind of hanging out with those guys pretty much straight away. Um, yeah, it was all around this pub in Brighton called The Heart and Hand. Uh, and, and, I, and I met them and it was like, it was like, I don't know, it was like the greatest thing ever, really. We just sort of went on a kind of massive bender for about a year and a half. <laughs> uh, you know, ecstasy was kind of flourishing in Brighton. Uh, and we just did shit loads of that and, and talked about kind of, you know, being in a band, but we didn't really have any songs or a name. Um, and none of us could play anything. Uh, so guy had never sung the rest of the band. And then we kind of, and we met Andy Huxley kind of around this time. And, uh, he was like really good at the guitar at 15, like was like fucking amazing. And none of us could really do anything. So Tom could play a little bit of guitar and, and written sort of ended up writing kind of a few songs on the first album. But I, um, so we just ended up kind of like telling everybody that we were in a band and it was amazing, but it didn't actually exist. So, um, so everyone kind of didn't really take us very seriously, but then I think after about a year and a half of kind of talking about it and we were kind of already a bit broken by then from doing too much ecstasy. We were only 19, you know, but already kind of had enough. Um, we thought, oh, you know, maybe we should try and start the band. Somewhere in the middle of it, like, Guy, had, we were on acid, and Guy had sort of said the words 80s matchbox, beeline disaster. And we thought, oh, you know, that, well, he thought really like that would be a really great name for a band. Um, 
So that's what we called it. <laughs> and uh, we just went with that, really, because it, it kind of made sense to us in our kind of, you know, drug-addled stupor. I, I don't think it made sense to everybody straight away. I guess that's another reason why we felt kind of left out, because everybody else was called the somethings, right? And we had yeah. this really long name, and we were, we were like this really intense band. And, um, yeah, and like we, we, we just sort of, uh, um, what do we do? Yeah, so we, we, we ended up kind of um, starting to rehearse, but we couldn't get past that song Chicken. Like, it took us like months to get past the sort of first verse. Like, none of us could really play. So, anyway, we ended up kind of... Um, rehearsing really hard actually and then we ended up doing a gig but by the time we ended up doing a gig no one believed that in Brighton that we were doing a gig because we'd been telling everybody we were in this band that it didn't exist so it was all a bit a bit weird so so we did this gig and um, it was like I mean we were never very tight you know but it was such a fucking mess it was incredible but you know we kind of knew though that was the thing we kind of knew um and I think it's okay to say this now because I'm not in the bands and, you know, kind of looking in on it now. But we kind of knew that we were going to do something just simply because of the energy between the five of us was so kind of, you know, it was, it was like something so sort of raw and visceral and exciting. And we were just sort of um, really uh, charged up from being in each other's company and kind of, you know, we were just really into the clothes and the music and, and we just loved it. We were kind of obsessed with the idea of it. And that was kind of, what we had you know and so when we got up there and did the first gig it was just this fucking explosion of energy that no one had ever really seen before and Everett True was there randomly there was only about four people there and he was randomly there and reviewed it for the Melody Maker uh, so we just started playing in Brighton really you know and um, but we just had this kind of thing where we just went fucking apeshit when we got up there and, and the song and the, the, what we had just sounded really really fresh and kind of um exciting and we kind of knew it you know we, we we knew it we knew that we weren't tight and we knew that we weren't um you know musicians in the sort of apart from andy you know in the, in the in the sort of traditional sense of the word but but we had something that was kind of pretty uh formidable and i think that's what carried us through really um but we did really sort of uh lock down you know um we all had jobs um, and we'd kind of go to work and we would rehearse every single night. And by this point, we'd kind of got a manager. So I moved to Brighton because I was really into this band called These Animal Men. Um, I was so obsessed with that band, I moved to Brighton. And then their manager ended up sort of managing us. We, we were sticking out posters. We, we were doing this, what we considered to be a tour, which was three days in a row in Brighton at different pubs. And we called it uh, the Your Hunting Daughters Tour. <laughs> um, after the exorcist so so he saw us like putting up the york hunting daughters tour posters and thought it was so fucking incredible that he came to the gig that night but we were doing all kinds of weird things like we did a gig where we gave out mushroom soup at the door you know and and and, and kind of um yeah people a lot of people in brighton were sort of talking about it i mean really guy was kind of famous in brighton before the band even started so we had that kind of leg up really uh, pretty small place Brighton but you know it was it was you know he was sort of really well known and uh so we so our manager ended up kind of saying oh you know you should come and do a gig he thought we were just incredible but just so loose he couldn't believe it you know so we ended up kind of like um he's saying oh you know come come and come and do uh a gig in London and you know for us going to play a gig in London was like playing Wembley Stadium you know 
yeah. the, the Dublin Castle. It was just like, you know, I'd drunk in there when I was 17. You know, the idea of playing a gig there was like literally playing to like a headline crowd at Wembley and it was sold out. And it was like eight labels came to watch us and they all kind of uh, turned us down really because we were just so loose and all over the shop. But we ended up kind of, um, we ended up sort of playing, playing, playing a few, you know, out of London a bit and kind of getting better, getting tighter. And then we did a deal with Virgin, you know, like a one single deal. That was morning is broken. Um, and off the back of that, which we sold that out um, like a thousand copies because you could, sell records quite easily in those days <laughs> you yeah. know a thousand doesn't didn't really seem like very much back then you know um and you know we got we got a few little bits of press and radio and um and then we went on tour with icara cult and the parkinson's you know uh which was like you know the damned the ramones and the clash like all going on tour together you know all the damned the sex pistols and the clash it was like that basically you know every night was like sold out this is like, you know, no one knew who the bands were, but every night was sold out around Britain, you know? Right. Because the enemy had, like, printed one article, you know, about it. So, and off the back of that, we signed to Universal. Yeah, we had quite a few offers, you know. But it was kind of different back then. I think it was sort of easier, I think, you know? It seemed it anyway. Um, so we signed to Universal in May 2002 and... and, and, and that that was that that was that really yeah, and obviously like the album it's only twenty five minutes long. Yes. Um, so what, were you like influenced by anyone in terms of that, or you were just like firing out music that you guys are into, kind of thing? Well, well, the, the music had like, you know, we we were sort of listening to like we were sort of inspired by I suppose to be concise, you know, like the Pixies, the Doors, the Stooges. And, and and we were smoking quite a lot of dope, you know, and I, and I remember like the songs were a lot slower and they had like this kind of groove to them, you know. And so, uh, uh, and by the time we ended up kind of um, recording the album, you know, we'd, we'd, I think we kind of bent our minds to the point where we were doing these really intense live shows and everything was like really fast to basically compensate for the fact that we couldn't really play. And and that's what became so compelling, I think. And so when we went into the studio, we just played the songs really fast, 10 songs, you know, that was it really. Um, I think it was like, you know, it was just a snapshot, wasn't it, of where the band was at that time. You know, we were, we were, we were like kids, you know, um, just full of like uncontainable energy and, and, and with a kind of... Uh, yeah, we want we wanted to make we wanted to make music, you know, that was kind of for people who are flagging at six in the morning, you know. I was talking to Dan Wilson from Black White. On his episode he was saying how he was into you guys. Um, yeah, they were really great, yeah. And he was he was saying he, he wondered like what your aim was as a band when you first died, because obviously, like I say, you're quite different. I think kind of lots of bands, you know, get signed, don't they? And they, they kind of get into doing drugs and, and that kind of lifestyle. And, but it was a bit like we'd sort of done it all before we got signed. And, right. so, and so when we got signed, it was about trying to kind of contain all of that, really. And I think um, the reason it sounded, probably sounded so different is because we, <laughs> we kind of like, we kind of shot ourselves into the abyss already, you know. Uh, 
and I don't think anyone, any of the other bands had. <laughs> that was the thing. And so that's why it sounded sort of so deranged and, and, and warped and off the wall. But yeah, I mean, it's also because I think, you know, Guy, Guy's vocals are uh, really, really, really unique and amazing. And, and the songwriters, you know, I suppose um, Andy and Tom wrote a lot of the songs. Um, you know, Andy particularly is, you know, such a unique guitarist. Um, you know, that, that, that the songs ended up having this kind of, yeah, peculiar sort of world of their own, really. You know, I think it was, it was, it was, they're really sort of strong songwriters with such a sort of specific identity that I think they kind of created that kind of sound, you know, because we'd never really heard of the Cramps or the Birthday Party or any of those bands that we were kind of, you know, supposed to, supposed to sound like, you know, that was all news to us, really. Psychobilly, we'd never heard of it, you know, but, but everyone kind of thought that we must love the Cramps, you know, the Birthday Party and it wasn't the truth, you know. I mean, Andy really loved Captain, Captain Beefheart, you know, but we were punks, really, you know. That, that's kind of where we came from, you know. So, yeah, that first album, Horse of the Dog, um, Paul Tipler produced it. Yes. He produced the likes of Placebo and Idlewild. Was there, um, yeah, did you like those bands? Did you like what he'd done with, with those bands before you worked with them kind of thing? Uh, uh, I think uh, it was really great working with Paul. He was amazing. Um, I think he really liked Joy Division. And uh, he saw, he saw, and us, he saw Joy Division. Um, and so he created, um, you know, something uh, which he, yeah, he felt was kind of in line with that, really. But I, I, I guess um, we didn't know Paul uh, when we met him. We met him, uh, we went for a drink with him. And I guess at that point, um, we, we were just meeting people and, and, and our manager said, oh, Paul Tipler is going to come and do the record. Uh, and uh, we were like, okay, cool. <laughs> you know, <laughs> so yeah, that was kind of got on with it, kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then we went over to uh, Chapel Studios in Lincolnshire, like residential studio, and sort of banged it out in a couple of weeks. And then obviously, like singles going to the top forty after that first album was that? Uh, how did that feel at the time? Because we talked to people who said, <clears throat> you know, they had success in the early days, and it kind of passed them by a bit because it's just saw a bit of a whirlwind, but. What was it like for you? Yeah, I, I think I mean it was great, you know, and, and but but there was always just this feeling, um, you know, and all of the stuff I've said in this interview, I mean, you know, I'm just speaking for myself really and how I perceived the others to feel, but there was always this this feeling that like what we were doing wasn't really good enough, you know. We we never really got much praise from anyone, you know, in terms of within our own sort of within our own uh camp, you know in terms of labels, managers, it was all, we always felt like our backs were up against the wall, really, and that we were this kind of, um, yeah, and that we were kind of doomed, really. So obviously with the benefit of hindsight, it was, it was great. But I think when you're in the band and you're doing it, you don't have any perspective on what you're doing. You're just looking at like other bands and thinking, well, why are we not kind of in the top 10 or in the top 20 or why, you know, why didn't we play double the pops and da, 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 da. I guess, um, there was that thing, I suppose, going back to the Libertines, you know, um, where I think at the time, you know, uh, you were like, they had like one guitar band a week would play Top of the Pops. And, and, and I remember the first two singles, the Libertines were like one place higher than us in, in the charts on their singles. So we released stuff at really similar times. And so they, they did it both times. 
And uh, so it was always just this feeling of like, yeah, we're in the top 40, but like, uh, yeah, it never really seemed like we were, yeah, we were doing that well, I suppose. Yeah, which I suppose is kind of weird maybe to other people because it, it did do well, you know, but, um, but yeah, you lose perspective on, on, on what's going on, you know. I was reading on your Wikipedia that you were known for having a large black car with red and orange flames on each side. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So because the, the band was named after a car that, we, that, that we'd seen, we, we told the label that and they bought us the car. <laughs> so, so we had this kind of car that, that, that was like a 1947 Humber Pullman limousine. Um, and uh, we sort of, it was a bit ridiculous really. Like it didn't really work very well, but we turned up at a few festivals in it and then we didn't pay um, the parking fines on it. So <laughs> it was kind of sitting in West London and homeless people slept in it. And, um, and yeah, that was that really. It didn't really get... Uh, it didn't really get you got got some got towed away or something. Yeah. All right. Yeah, because in that Mark Beaumont uh, gig review, I think you'd you must have drove to the gig in it because he said uh, like fans are outside the gig looking into the car and stuff like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we did. We did take. Uh, we did go to a few gigs in it, or maybe probably our manager just drove there and we sort of pretended that we turned up. All right. Probably, probably more likely what happened. <laughs> <laughs> interview uh you like mentioned earlier you kind of yeah like, reined in the drug taking a little bit when yeah when things started to kick off well I, I, it was a massive problem for me i mean I, I ended up going into rehab a couple of times and uh i'm clean and sober now nearly just coming up to nine years actually um but yeah i, I for me it was a it was like a constant struggle and uh, in and out of addiction really with all, all drugs and booze and um you know, so I, 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 I really battled with that and it was, it was, it was incredibly sort of painful throughout the whole band. Um, and then I couldn't really tour anymore towards the end. And then the band split up in 2011, but we got back together for a little bit in 2013, you know. How much is like quite hard to avoid all that stuff if you're in a band in that scene kind of thing? Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I, 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 um, I definitely, but I mean, I think I probably would have gone that way anyway. Uh, okay. But, 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 the, but obviously, you know, there's not that many kind of, you know, situations where you can just get up and start drinking and just get up and start doing drugs and not be fired from your job straight away, you know? Uh, so it kind of, yeah, it probably exacerbated it or accelerated it a bit, but it kind of would have been like that anyway, really, I think for, for me personally, you know, but yeah, I mean, it's kind of, it's intense, isn't it? Because every night you're in a different city, different town. Um, you have free booze, free drugs. You know, people wanting to hang out with you, people wanting to have a party with you. You know, it's uh, it's intense. But I was always kind of, you know, um, I, you know, I definitely had a good time. But I was, it was laced with a kind of deep, deep sadness because I was just, I guess, I was kind of quite lonely in it. Really, I was, I felt like I was kind of. Um, yeah, I mean, addiction's a pretty lonely place to be, you know, so there was a lot of people around, but I was pretty fucked up. And then in the end, I was just sort of um, kind of incapacitated by it all, really. So I wasn't able to do anything. That was by the time we hit 2011, yeah. Well, it's good to say you've come through all that, anyway, isn't it? 
Oh, thank you. Thank you. Um, but yeah, we had um, Patrick Walden on from the Baby Shambles who went through a similar thing as well. Yeah, yeah I know Patrick, yeah. Yeah, and he said, yeah, he's, I think a few years ago, he finally got properly clean and stuff. Oh, that's good. That's good to hear, yeah. It's not easy, you know. It took a while. I was trying to get clean in 80s Matchbox, but I could never really go on tour clean, you know. But I have subsequently done many tours clean, so it's possible, you know, totally possible in, in other bands and stuff, you know. Yeah. Did you have, like, a bit of a... Was there a moment where it kind of... Where it clicked, where you realised you couldn't do it anymore? Or, or not really? Yeah, just years of trying, years of just then like starting to drink again and then the drugs that I'd got into were sort of darker, um, you know, and I was kind of just really lost in all of that and I just had no money and nothing to eat and like, you know, it was just, uh, and it's just the repetitiveness of then getting a bit of clean time and then doing it again and I just, I just kind of had enough. So I, I kind of committed, you know, nine years ago to, to sort of a sort of long-term recovery really, um, but obviously, you know, it's a day at a time, isn't it? But, but I've kind of, yeah, I made, yeah. So it clicked, clicked for me then, you know. But I could, I should have really stopped, you know, before the band had even started. You know, uh, it was already a massive issue for me then, you know. Um, yeah, just going back to those earlier, there's like you said, you supported some you know, very good bands like Queen of the Stone Age, Placebo. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, what was that like? Oh, it was amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was really amazing. Yeah, yeah. Really great doing the, the placebo tours and things in the Stone Age. And, uh, we went over to, uh, to the desert to uh, Joshua Tree to record our second album. Uh, and we, did, we started it in Sound City, actually, where they did Nevermind. And then we went over, out to the desert. But Chris Costed it, who produced Queens of the Stone Age. Um, so we kind of met up with those guys over there and then kind of uh, ended up... Uh, yeah, going on, going and touring with them a couple of years later. Uh, yeah, it was really amazing. We we supported Iggy Pop. Um, yeah, Placebo. Uh, System of a Down was really good. But that's what I mean. I guess we we kind of went down a slightly heavier route than than some of the other bands that were kind of in the enemy at the time. You know, you kind of quite glad you didn't get caught up in the enemy thing too much because, like, talking to people now, they're like, they kind of seem really proud to say that you're one of the favourite bands kind of thing. Whereas, you know, we've had all this, um, what do you call it, indie landfill talk. And, like, obviously you're not really involved in that. So, yeah, yeah, in yeah. a way, you're quite glad that you avoided all that, really. Uh, I mean, it was good to be in the magazine, you know, all the time, you know. And, um, and, uh, and, 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 you know, and I, think, I think it was great. I think kind of, in a way, the music scene today kind of misses something like that where like a go-to place for bands because it's really hard to find out, you know, I mean, there's just so many blogs aren't there now and so many places to, to get information about stuff that, uh, but yeah, it's just really, really hard to know where to look, but it was great. But yeah, I guess, I guess I'm sort of proud in a way, you know, that we were kind of out on our own a bit, that we had our own thing. Um, and the kind of the weirdness of the band, um, you know, like we had a kind of harder name to digest than other bands. And, you know, we, we never really kind of, we never did anything to sort of, you know, we never did anything that we didn't want to do. Do you know what I mean? You know, we, ne we never, we never sold ourselves short. Um, I'm kind of proud of that. And I'm proud of the kind of legacy that is, that that's created of being kind of so sort of, uh, 
true to ourselves really you know i'm proud of that and i think other people have, have see that now you know i guess maybe going back to what i said about us being kind of you know feeling like no one really liked us i think i think maybe people were just weren't really too sure what to make of us really <laughs> i'm sure people you you like i feel a bit bad saying that you're saying everyone really liked us but i guess i guess it was probably just our own paranoia really you know yeah i mean it's just people we've talked to i guess maybe like other bands really yeah kind of thing maybe yeah yeah i think people respect us now definitely um at the time i think yeah i'm not sure people knew what 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 to make of us you know yeah so going back to that second album um like going into it did you feel much pressure after the first album or how what was your mindset going into that oh the, the whole i mean we were constantly under pressure all the time i mean that's what i mean about you know that 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 kind of feeling where you never really felt like you were you were successful or you were succeeding because the information you were getting from from your kind of label and management you know was was just oh you know we need this we need this we need this we need this and we need it now and yeah it was there was a pressure because we'd just been on tour for 18 months solidly and then you come back and then you have to kind of get in the studio and write another record and and then go go on the other side of the world and record it and you know obviously it was amazing you know it was it was, it was great fun you know and and all of that but it, there was a, definitely a pressure like and the label you know really wanted us to oh, it's so hard to know how to describe it really but everyone wanted a radio one hit out of us you know mm. so there was that pressure of kind of trying to kind of you know still um be true to our own destiny and what we wanted to do and, and the information we were getting was kind of you know we needed to you know we needed we needed a pop hit you know we were never that kind of band um you know i'm sure we probably tried to do stuff but it, it never really worked out like that for us so there was always there was always a pressure yeah like that, that what we were doing wasn't really quite good enough um but i think that's probably the same with all bands you know it's, it's good management isn't it you know Mm. to be kind of like pushing you um pushing you further trying trying to kind of draw stuff out of you you know yeah and obviously it's like nearly double the length of the first album so where you're trying to be a bit more conventional oh not really i think we just had a lot more songs i think we went out to the desert you know there was there was you know we had loads more time in a way to record it um you know, we went out there with a massive budget, which I just, which just kind of seems in, incomprehensible really now, uh, to go there and just fuck about in LA for three months and, and and kind of you know make an album. And we had we yeah, songs weren't really finished when we went out there, so there was loads of experimentation. Chris Goss, who was really amazing, was sort of like uh, got quite involved in the sort of the arrangement. So we went over there with some demos. And then he would like rearrange them and then we'd rehearse them up. So there was a lot of kind of moving around with the songs uh, on that record. Whereas the first one was just all, we just went there and we banged it out as, as we would have done live, you know? Um, yeah. But yeah, lots of sort of playing around with stuff and, and kind of, um, yeah, uh, ditching of songs, working on songs. So the, yeah, there was much more of a sort of a, uh, elongated process to it, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I've been listening to your music again this week and that second album's great, I think. Oh, thanks, man. You definitely hear the Queens of the Stone Age type of vibe on it. 
it's got that desert vibe, hasn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah definitely. Thanks for listening to this episode of 22 Grand Pod. If Naughty's guitar music is your thing, then you might enjoy our Patreon page, where for £3 a month you will get access to the following series. The Naughty's Deep Dive, where we go through the likes of the Stalking Pete Doherty documentary in painful detail. My favourite 2000s album, where patrons and other guests come on to talk about their favourite album of the era. Legend or Landfill, in which we go through Enemy's top 10 albums of each year from 2001 and see if we think they are indeed legendary or for the landfill. Unsigned Stories, where we chat to bands that didn't quite make it in terms of signing that elusive record deal. We also have Fan Stories, where I talk to people about their memories and opinions on all things Naughty's Indie. You also get early access to any main podcast episodes and it's also worth checking out the YouTube page where you can see extended video versions of the interviews as well as plenty of other bits of commentary and opinion. All links are in the description. Now back to the pod. And then I noticed I was reading about you had like a bit of a side project called The Boogs. Is that right? Like what was the, uh, what was the thinking behind that? I, 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 I couldn't really tell you what the, what, the, what, the, what the logical reason for that was. But I remember we were in New York and we shot a video and we were dressed up as green bees and like, green bugs sorry and we were like walking around and it was like St. Patrick's Day and they were like they thought we were like Irish mods and that we'd come over specifically to like from Ireland to celebrate St. Patrick's Day over there it was all really confusing and then the war broke out whilst we were there in 2003 uh so yeah it was just a bit but we we shot this video it was really cool um I'm not really too quite sure what we were doing um but um but yeah, we did it. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> How many songs did you do as the books? I think it was just that one. I think it was one, right? Okay. Yeah, I think it was just that one. Yeah. And then I also saw you did a benefit gig for Brighton Football Club to try and get him to sign a new player. <laughs> just wondered if uh, they ever did sign a player off the back of that. Jesus, I can't really remember. I remember the gig. Um, and I've got no, and it was all really odd. There were these like, kind of like, proper lads at the gig, obviously coming up to us, like coked out of their faces, going, "Oh yeah, nice one, nice one, thanks a lot, yeah, yeah, thanks a lot, thanks a lot." And it was just really confusing. I don't know why we, why we did it, but I mean, obviously we were we were we were, we were a Brighton band, but yeah, it was it was really peculiar. Yeah. <laughs> I think they normally would have just been beating the shit out of us, those guys, but they seem to. <laughs> They seem to they seem to like be like, I don't know, like on loads of MDMA or something, were like, oh like hugging us. They were like really happy, yeah. And am I right in thinking there was a bit of a hiatus between the second and third album? Yeah, we yeah, I mean, absolutely fucking no idea what was going on then. I mean we we Andy left in two thousand and four, you know, so that was kind of hard. Um because he was such a sort of um important part of the songwriting you know um so he left and then rich came in um which is really great but it was a mixture of we you know we got dropped by universal people were really wanting us to write five you know radio one hits so there was just kind of waiting around for us to do that and i think it was just a just just, just, just doing shit loads of drugs in Brighton, really, and the time just flew. Um, you know, it's not like we didn't have any songs. They were just, we were trying to carve out something that 
you know, wasn't really, wasn't really us. And um, yeah, I guess maybe we kind of lost our way a bit. But but it's like it's like what I was saying when you're in the, when you're in the band, it's so hard to. It all seems kind of like reasonable what's going on, you know. But we should have just come out with a record straight away. But we, I mean, we demoed so many songs, and you know, I guess there was just this feeling that, like, yeah, they weren't they weren't Radio One singles, so so we just kind of, and that's that that was what kind of people wanted from us in terms of in the industry. Um, so yeah, and, and and we were just doing far too many drugs, and the time left, time passed. And we came out with the third record, yeah. But by that time, I think maybe, um, yeah, maybe uh, we'd waited a bit too long. <laughs> <laughs> We're doing gigs yeah. in that time, though, between, between those albums. Oh, yeah, like the band was active. Like, we, <clears throat> you know, we, we did loads. We were touring loads. We even went to America. We did the Queen's tour. We did um, uh, Scars on Broadway, which is System of a Downs thing. You know, we did Glastonbury. We were still, you know, really active. I'm selling out all our shows, you know, still kind of there, but we were trying to sort of make this record and we all just got a bit of fucking lost in it, you know, uh, management, us, you know, picking around in this record. And, and uh, it was our fault really as a band, you know, I think probably, uh, probably we didn't quite have the, um, you know, we weren't, we weren't unified enough to really pull it together, uh, you know, but it's hard, you know, in a band, I think, um, you know, it's almost like <clears throat> the band is at its kind of perfect point just before you get signed. You know, that's when the band's like really on fire, you know, and the, you're all so unified and, and kind of, you know, you're kind of, the friendships between you are really strong and it's all just really beautiful and you're kind of, it all comes together and, and no one ever really gets to see that point because then you get signed and then, and then you get thrown on tour for like years and years and years and all these external forces come in and people trying to kind of, you know, direct the songwriting and trying to, you know, all the shit goes on and then everyone's just getting fucked. And, you know, it kind of, um, it can be a bit hard to steady the ship sometimes, you know? Yeah, I mean, we've had uh, the likes of Preston from The Ordinary Boys on and he he described it like, a lot of being in the band is managing the decline. Is that something you could relate to? Yeah, 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 yeah. Just, 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 just kind of like, you know, how do you react? You know, after you've done a record, you know, how, how do you regroup after the, the inevitable kind of year long tour that you do? How do you regroup and then, and then kind of get, you know, get straight back in and then get on with the next record. I mean, that's what you have to do. You have to be relentless, you know, um, we just fucked about too much with that third record. It's still an amazing record. I think I love it. You know, I think it's great, you know, but, but, you know, we went to the South of France to record it, which was kind of unnecessary. And, but it's a shame no one ever gets to see the band before it gets signed. Mm. You know, cause that, that's when it's really like, we were on fire then, I think, you know, to just early 2002. Yeah. Um, Is that, yeah, before like the pressure kind of changes. Yeah, it's just there's all these external forces come in, you know, and, and everyone, everyone kind of, you know, the internal struggles start, you know. Um, I think it's the same with any band that I've spoken to, really. You know, you, everyone's, everyone's kind of wants to start doing different things. 
people yeah people want the band to go in different directions you know some people are getting out of their mind some people aren't getting that out of their mind you know um yeah you know, labels and management come in and they you know they want you to they want you to go a certain way certain people in the band don't want to go that way certain people in the band do want to go that way i mean you end up having loads of fucking discussions about nothing that go on for weeks and weeks and weeks and you look back on it and you think like why was that even a discussion you know everything's like this big debate that goes on and you know i think kind of you're in this kind of um i don't know how to describe it this kind of um bubble where things that really aren't very important something become really important and there's so much drama going on because no one's really in control you know so and no one it's not like in another job where like you know if you throw a hissy fit you know you might get fired or suspended or whatever or there's just rules that you have to adhere to there's not really any rules and there certainly wasn't any in our band you know and so there was there was there was this kind of there was this kind of weird anarchy that was kind of going on and um, everyone kind of, yeah, just going about it, how they wanted to go about it, you know, to keep unified. I'm sure it's the same with every band, you know, and to keep the unity is, is hard, you know, it's five of you, you know. Yeah. And I guess that's why maybe, you know, loads of bands don't like, don't, you know, don't do what the Rolling Stones have done or, or do what, you know, uh, the Red Hot Chili Peppers. I can't think of any bands that have been going on for, for as long as they have, you yeah. know. Yeah. Because you too or something you know because they 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 just have a either they have someone who's like in charge you know um or they just just yeah they just they have that kind of you know we were never really that yeah we were just a bit wayward really you know yeah i guess like a band that's one of the only bands that's still going from that time is the cribs and they were yeah, they were kind of saying like they're always they've always been on the same page kind of thing and always been rooting for each other and i guess that's plays a massive well, part in it well they're related as well aren't yeah, they? Of course, yeah 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 they're a good band yeah they're they're related so i guess yeah maybe that helps i'm not sure maybe it doesn't help i don't know it's, it's hard to know but i think with a band it's such a kind of inexplicable chemistry isn't it it's such a kind of you can't you can't articulate the kind of the magic and the kind of sort of combustible sort of energy and, and kind of, um, do you know what I mean? Like uncontrollable sort of forces and weird dynamics. You can't, you just can't articulate it. That's why it's so special. And I yeah. think particularly with our band, it was such a fucking, you know, I mean, we just really fucking hit people, you know, and, you know, how do you, how, you know, how, how, do you, how do you rein that in? How do you control that? It was uncontrollable, really. There's no way you could ever control it. So <clears throat> in a way, you're always kind of doomed with a band like that because, because it's so like, it's kind of inconceivable, isn't it? Like you can't, it's like the clash, you know, they, 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 were, they had so much kind of, um, you know, the, the chemical reaction between those members was so kind of formidable that it was impossible that it was ever going to be able to kind of, you're going to be able to keep that together forever, you know, and, and I guess it's probably a bit similar with us really, you know. We were a bit too out there, I think, you know, which is great, which is why it was so special, you know. Yeah. It's, it's hard, you know, we hard to hard to hard to keep keep that keep that together, you know. It's a yeah. shame really. Um yeah, we had talking to the long blondes on the last episode and they kind of made the point that, you know, some bands are meant to like shine brightly for a short time kind of thing. 
Oh, yeah, totally. I mean, we still did it for 12 years. I mean, it was still yeah. a long time and we're still recovering. I mean, you know, being in a band is like, it's like, it's like, it's like, uh, I always imagine it's sort of like, you know, when people come back from like fighting in Vietnam or, or like Iraq or something, you know, and they've got PTSD. It's kind of like that, but worse. <laughs> you know, when a band breaks up, you know, you're kind of permanently scarred, aren't you? You know, no one's yeah. ever really been the same since. But it's great. I mean, I still love all of them, you know. And, uh, you know I'm still in contact with all of them, so it's it's great, you know. It's, but it's, it's uh, yeah, it is like, uh, it is kind of like coming back from war, yeah. You mentioned splitting up in 2011. Yeah, can you just describe that time? Was it kind of inevitable, do you think? Oh, it was fucking horrible. I mean, I, I was I was sort of I was sort of addicted to crack. I was addicted to smack. I was drinking around the clock. I got a phone call, um, basically told I couldn't go on the tour, um, the European tour, um, which at the time I was really angry and upset about. But I mean, looking back on it, it was totally unreasonable. Because I was just out of my mind. We, we did a few tours that year and our album had just come out and we'd signed a fresh deal to a subsidiary of fiction. And um, yeah, so I basically, it was kind of like, we did this kind of final, we didn't know it was going to be the final tour necessarily, but we did this tour in uh, November, October, November 2011 and it was fucking horrible. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think I have put through everybody through a kind of uh, uh, version of hell really around then. So I, I, I've always felt really bad about that. And um, it was horrible. So then after that, I kind of knew it was the end for me. And then the band split up. Yeah, and then I was just sort of stuck in London, really, just really fucked off and lost and skint and just doing loads of drugs and then I ended up getting kind of clean in 2011. Um, and then the band got back together actually in 2012 uh, for a little short while. But but yeah, that 2011, it was horrible because, you know, we'd had sort of lineup changes and each time you have a lineup change, it's, you know, you have to adapt as a band, you know. I think we were all a bit weathered by that point. And then I'm right in thinking um, Nike using the song Chicken, does that kind of give you a bit of a second wind for you to get back together? <clears throat> yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, I mean, we, that, we did get back together. Yeah, yeah, we, we, we did five shows, sold out. Um, we got our old manager back. We tried to do a fourth record. Uh, we didn't manage to do that. Uh, we had a lot of big shows we cancelled. Um, you know, it was just one of those things. I mean, we just just couldn't really kind of make it happen really. I, I, uh, it was a shame really. Cause I think we got a kind of a second chance at that point. Um, there was a lot of interest around the band and obviously it was just fucking weird that we got that advert. I mean, you know, it was like a load of footballers like Wayne Rooney and it's like chicken playing in the background, you know, and it, it was, it was quite a weird song. It wasn't even one of our, I mean, we never really had that many commercial songs, but it wasn't even that, that was definitely not one of them, you know? And, uh, yeah. So there was like, yeah, we, we ended up kind of, I remember getting the text about it and thinking fucking hell, 
that's really mad and then uh yeah we did did some shows and they were great actually the band was really strong at that point uh like live like we'd kind of got it back um to how it should be and we, we were pr- we were pretty amazing on those gigs yeah people like that that's the best i've ever seen you you know um but but yeah i think creatively we we we, we were we were kind of uh, going in different directions so unfortunately we couldn't really make another record right yeah and then you ended up ending it again in 2013 is that right yeah yeah exactly yeah 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 but yeah do you think that second like you say people say it's the best i've ever seen it do you think you kind of grabbed it with both hands at that point to have a bit of a second chance collectively no probably not no no i mean on a personal level yeah i was really up for it you know um but 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 there you know people were at different places so it wasn't anyone's fault or anything it was just uh it was just a wrong time you know um again you know a lot of pressure i think once you got to a certain level with the band it's never like five guys or four guys you know um meeting up and mates playing music together there's always this kind of roar of like expectancy and kind of ordering going on from like this is what we need and we need it now you know so there was a lot of pressure on us actually uh you know we were always getting pushed and yeah i guess um yeah i guess i guess yeah like we we just couldn't really pull it together unfortunately and yeah i saw like one of the the songs i was listening to off the second album the first song i feel what's it called but it's covered by the prodigy is that right oh yeah so i was like i was like because then I did Piano Wire with Andy Huxley afterwards. And I was like in the car going to the studio with Andy and my phone pinged. And uh, it was like, all right, Sim, it's Liam Howlett. We just wanted to get the green light for covering uh, Rise of the Eagles. And I was like, what the fuck is going on? How did this guy even get my number? <laughs> um, so it was really mad. Uh, yeah. And Andy had written the song and I was in the car with him. <clears throat> and... Uh, yeah, it's just fucking mad, wasn't it? I mean, the Prodigy, I, yeah, I really loved them. I remember, you know, trying to go and see them when I was 13, not being able to. It was too young. And, and kind of, we'd met Keith Flint, actually, in a festival in Spain or Portugal or something. And he, he had said, uh, yeah, he really loved our band. Weirdly, we were, on, we were on the same stage as them. So it was kind of, their dressing room was next door to ours. So we kind of hung out with them a bit, you know, and... Uh, yeah, it's pretty pretty cool. And yeah, you just made mention piano wire. Uh, yeah, how quickly did that start after <clears throat> the end of the second time in the band? Straight away, really. Me and Andy had a few songs that we'd written for the for the for the unfinished fourth album, uh, and we kind of reconnected. I hadn't really seen Andy or spoken to him at all since he'd left in two thousand and four. So you're talking about sort of nine years, really. I just barely had any much contact with him. Um, and, and and me and him were kind of you know quite enthusiastic about about doing some more music, and so we had these four songs that we just started off with, uh, and then we just sort of took it from there, really, yeah. Um, and then we, we 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 did that from like 2013 to 2018, um, and then yeah, that ended then. Yeah, and you recorded with Gil Norton, who'd produce massive bands like the Pixies and Foo Fighters. Uh, what was that experience like? Oh, it was amazing. Yeah, yeah, it was great. I mean, he's made so many kind of brilliant albums. 
So it was like, yeah, it was an honour, really. We went up to Stockport, I think. He really wanted to record in Stockport. That's around the corner from me, actually. Oh, is it? Right, yeah, yeah. Uh, the studio called uh, Eve Studios. Yeah, so we went out there, up there. We, did, we spent like four days on one song. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, it was kind of insane, but it was great. Yeah, really cool. Uh, great, great to work with him. I mean, Bossa Nova is one of my favourite albums of all time, and, you know, you produced that, so... I was pretty excited. Yeah. And did you play a lot of gigs with, with that band? Yeah, it was another, it's another thing, you know, as I was saying, you, you can never really tell what, what's actually fucking going on when you're in the band. I mean, we did quite well with it, really. We did tour a lot. Uh, we went to Germany, we went to France, we did a lot in the UK. Uh, we supported the Witches. Uh, you know, we put out a couple of albums. We were building, really. It's, it's, I think it's kind of different when you do a second band second time round, um, and I think the industry had changed to the point where you know you have to build a little bit more incrementally rather than what we did with eighties Matchbox where we came out and we you know we were like all over the music press straight away. It's sort of harder to do that now, I think. Um, so yeah, but me and Andy kind of wanted to go in different directions, I suppose that that's ultimately why that ended but you know it was, it was, it was pretty amicable you know we're still, we're still in touch and stuff yeah I mean, hence the reason why my primitive ignorant thing is so kind of wildly different to anything i've ever done really yeah i was gonna ask you about that there's um like a lot of collaborations on there and stuff yeah um, yeah how would you describe primitive ignorant then sort of like a sort of industrial fuzz kind of pop warped electronic kind of um thing i suppose it what's it been inspired by you know i suppose it's sort of i wanted to do something that you know, still punk in my head because it doesn't sound wasn't what anyone was expecting me to do um i think you know with with 80s matchbox it was i mean it, it was kind of impossible to better that as a rock band you know if I was going to do another guitar band, I, it was never going to be better than that, you know. Um, I think Guy is such a sort of great front man. I don't think, you know, you'd need someone better than him, you know. Mm. Uh, I don't think that would have been possible, really. Um, so I just thought, oh, fuck it, I want to do something, just be really free, a bit like Big Audio Dynamite were, you know, and just do it electronic so it's just me and then okay. um i can't sing <laughs> at all so um i have collaborated with singers but i've written all the words um done the majority of the writing really written all the words um and then worked with some singers on the tracks but yeah i just wanted to do something that that was totally different what not what people expected um and to have that kind of freedom you know because I guess that's what punk is, isn't it? It's being about being a free thinker. It's about kind of doing the unexpected. It's about, you know, you know it's, it's, it's like a way of life, isn't it? So yeah, like how, um, obviously, like Idols are on there, Mick Jones, were there relationships you already had kind of thing? Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, Mick Jones used to live around the corner from me in, uh, in Labrick Grove. So I used to see him in the pub in the mornings when I used to drink quite often, and then I'd see him... Uh, in Cafe Nero when I, when I stopped drinking and he seemed to stop drinking or something at the same time. 
but he lives like on the street down from me. So I used to see him all the time in the Clash, like my favourite band. And the album is set in West London, so it made sense to kind of ask him to do it. I met him when we did Rock Against Racism with the Libertines, actually, because um, he, he did their two albums. So I, I, I kind of knew him a little bit. Um, but we're not like friends or anything, but I, I knew him, you know. Um, and Joe Talbot, yeah, 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 I know Joe uh, from Idols. Uh, so I just called him up and asked him. It's a bit like, you know, Mick and Joe, like Mick and Joe in The Clash, so... Uh, I really like Idols. I think they're kind of a phenomenal band. So it's really cool. Honour really to have both of those on there, yeah. And how has that been in terms of, you know, we, we ask bands how things have changed in terms of making music and getting music out. Like, what do you think the big challenges are for new bands starting now kind of thing? How, how have you found it, like, producing this album? Yeah, it's, 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 a, it's, it's harder. You know, I don't know, in a way it's not harder because... You know, you, you you can you can put stuff up online, can't you? You can be an artist, you can be a musician just by setting yourself up online. You can reach people, can't you? Um, yeah. Without having any label or management or, or or whatever, you don't have to have any structure around you. You can just reach people, which is great. So anybody can do it. Um, you know, and I guess the internet's kind of created an environment of diversity cultural diversity there's a lot of music available uh, a lot of different kinds of music available you know which is really great but it's obviously harder because i mean there's this you know the digital world kind of took all the money out of the industry didn't it so as an artist you know you struggle um probably financially more than you did you know there's no one giving you loads of money to go and make a record you know there's no one giving you loads of money to live off you know, the idea of, that we were waged by a label in 80s Matchbox just seems kind of, you know, like some kind of fucking Disneyland or something. <laughs> Whereas it was totally normal at the time, you know, uh, to get an advance and get waged, you know. Uh, yeah. uh, whereas now, now it's, it's a lot harder. But it's the kind of same for everyone, isn't it? Um, but I do think it's great that you can kind of be free in the sense that you can kind of, you know, you you can make music and put it up online. Like I, I, I can make music on my laptop now, you know, after we finish this interview and I can put it up and people can listen to it straight away. You know, So that's kind of great. You know, I can have a new track and people could be hearing it in like an hour's time. That's amazing. You know, it's great that everyone has a voice. I think that's really good. Um, it's harder because I suppose, you know, the enemy and Kerrang, you know, they were like the go-to places, weren't they? Um, if the enemy wrote about you, you know, you just got off, your next gig was full, you know? Um, yeah. Whereas now it's like there's thousands of blogs and thousands of bands and no one really knows what bands what and who's what and what's going on. And, you know, I suppose that, I mean, obviously now because of the virus, there's no live shows, but disregarding the virus, I think there was a much stronger culture of going to gigs back then, you know, people just going to gigs for the sake of going to gigs and, local venues and and it was just cheap to go and watch bands and people were just into it whereas now you know you need to be told by at least 20 different people you know every day over the course of five years that a band's good before you check them out on youtube you know? and then you might go and see them live if you really can't contain yourself <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah i mean a few people have said that like there's not one scene or one place to go yeah, like check out new bands like Enemy or I suppose you get like 
Radio 6 who have good programmes, but yeah, it's a lot more diverse now, do you think? Yeah, I mean, but the diverse, the diverse aspect to it is really great. I mean, that, that, yeah. that, that, that's the positive aspect, I think. Um, but then, you know, at the same time, it's also not, it's also would be cool, like if there was a, a scene of bands who, who kind of knew each other or who were aware of each other or who, you know, I suppose like those bands in 2002 to 2005 maybe didn't really sound the same, but you could tell they were inspired by similar similar things maybe like because Britpop had kind of happened in all of our youths maybe everybody had the same kind of upbringing musically or something there was simply something connecting all those bands but they probably all sounded quite different whereas now it's just random isn't it I mean fucking just no no two bands sound the same to me you know which is great which I suppose is great isn't it but you know, fucking artists don't get paid well enough. You know that that that's that's what the digital age has done. It's not allowed. You know, it's made it harder, harder for us to survive. You know. Yeah, like we've had people talking about the pay through from Spotify being pretty appalling and everything like that. I mean, it's just it's negligible, really. And by the time it's 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 not negligible. You know, it's point. It, it's you know, you've probably got like such a big publishing deal that you don't even really notice the Spotify money coming through you know yeah is that where the money is now like in publishing yeah yeah and you know tracks get picked up for films and stuff but it was always sort of like that anyway mm. but but i guess i guess because no one's buying music anymore that's the real problem isn't it no one's you know cds don't exist anymore really do they no one, no one really makes cds no, no one's buying music i mean uh it's just so it's hard to get any money out of a label you know was there a high point of, of 80s Matchbox or those early days? Yeah. Uh, you know, I think prob- probably being in LA for three months doing that second record was pretty amazing. Yeah, it was a bit like fear and loathing. <laughs> yeah. Did you ever like do any kind of home videos for making the album or anything like that? Nah, because we didn't, we didn't, we were never, we never, we were never really good like that. I suppose the phones weren't really as kind of, didn't have camera phones and stuff in those days. Yeah. So we didn't really, there's not really much footage and which is a shame really. I've still got some kind of disposable cameras in my loft. I need to get developed. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Is there anything you do differently about 80s Matchbox? Yeah. I think I'd like to, uh, I've just got less wasted and maybe practice my instrument a bit more. Yeah. We always try and finish on, a funny story about the Gallagher brothers, if possible, but just a funny story in general about that time would be good. I did share a flat with him Gallagher for an afternoon. Uh, <laughs> it was really fucking random. We, we went on to uh, do this, this show called uh, Born Sloppy with Sarah Cox and uh, Appleton's were, were on and, uh, and uh, we went to do the sound check <clears throat> and um, Someone was like, oh, yeah, yeah, and there's a flat for you around the corner that you'll be sharing with Liam Gallagher. And I just just didn't really think anything of it. I thought it was like a joke. <laughs> so um, I was sort of sitting there in this flat. It's like a, just like a normal flat, you know, like my flat or whatever, just like a normal flat. And I was having a spliff um, watching TV, and the, the door like fucking burst open. And Liam Gallagher walked in, and I was like, what the fuck is going on? <laughs> and uh, it was just really, really confusing, because I guess like, I guess, like, as a kid growing up, like, he was, like, you know, on TV and everything everywhere. And Oasis was such a big band. And 
so it was, it was kind of quite, quite kind of weird. And he came up and said, "Oh, I've seen your video. You know, I was talking about psychosis safari." I kind of found the idea of him watching that video quite sort of hilarious. But we had the same agent, so I think our agent was always trying to get us to tour with them, which would have been kind of, you know, sort of amazing and ridiculous at the same time. Yeah, yeah. So how was he? Was he? How did you find him that afternoon? Just fairly. Oh, yeah, I thought he was cool as fuck. Yeah, 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 <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally, man. Kind of, you know, total sort of, uh, you know, total start, really. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.